Welcome to Victory Over Communism with Bill Gertz, the only program willing to pull back the curtain of communism to reveal how China and even America's own brand of Marxism pose real threats to freedom and democracy in America and the world today. Your host and guide to victory over communism is one of the nation's most experienced national security journalists, Bill Gertz, who uses unique facts, pinpoint analysis, and exclusive interviews to identify and counter today's destructive communist ideologies. Now, Victory Over Communism with your host, Bill Gertz. Welcome to the podcast. The VOC podcast is about ideology, Chinese communism, and what I call American Marxism. The program is not about people. All people are free to believe in whatever they choose. My purpose here is to help educate Americans and people of the world to these dystopian ideologies. For this episode, I'm going to look at how Marxists in the Biden administration have undermined the U.S. military through destructive woke policies imposed by Pentagon civilians. The House Committee on Oversight and Accountability held a hearing last month that totally illuminates this problem. As Representative Glenn Grothman stated in chairing the hearing on the risks of progressive ideologies in the military, the U.S. military is grappling with the Biden administration's social experimentation of integrating principles of diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, into the ranks. The Pentagon recently requested $115 million for diversity and inclusive initiatives in the fiscal 2024 budget. I have concerns with how the DEI bureaucracy implements an ideological agenda within the military framework that has the potential to divide instead of build up, a potential to harm unit cohesion and undermine our soldiers' effectiveness. That's how Grothman introduced the hearing. We need to understand the influence of progressive ideologies on military policy, training, and the overall culture. We also need to understand the extent to which ideological considerations are shaping the decision-making processes. Our armed forces have long been a bastion of meritocracy, where individuals are evaluated and promoted based on their skills, competence, and dedication to duty. It's crucial that we examine whether the emphasis on ideological framework is affecting the core principles of a merit-based military. The promotion of neo-Marxist racialism and radical genderism in the military has potentially devastating effects for the military services. This is the view of military experts who understand the basics of the military, and that is, uh, includes Iraq War veteran Will Thibault who stated in congressional testimony before the committee that initial training for military members is designed to melt away the effects of civilian life in forging Americans into soldiers who are ready to devote their lives to the mass application of violence on behalf of American interests. Instead, the leftist agenda of the Biden administration is based on the false neo-Marxist notion that diversity an all-inclusive term for promoting racism and for promoting base sexual practices is something essential for national security. Let's be clear. Those civilian ideological precepts are not essential for our national security. Further, they are corrosive on the military, whose purpose is to fight and win the nation's wars. The military is being forced to adopt ideological precepts that are not required 
to fight and win those nations' wars, this nation's war. As Thibault testified, like a drop of ink in a glass of water, the hint of ideology outside the scope of military professionalism is corrosive to the force's overall effectiveness. Historical examples include the 18th century French military to the Soviet army in the late Cold War. They reveal a slippery slope once factors outside the explicit context of military competence affect military decisions. Diversity goals are being used as excuses for blatant discrimination. White men and women make up almost 80% of the Air Force officers. Current Air Force policy now dictates that reducing that proportion by almost 15%. To achieve this established quotas will require nothing less than race-based discrimination. Veterans and service members already consider the military too politicized, and this implicates present and future recruiting success. In May 2023, it was reported the Air Force created a diversity flight school. Its classes mirrored the race and gender demographics of the nation. This manipulation of the most critical talent of our military produced consecutive flight school classes below sustainable level, levels, far below average. This brutal case study is a harbinger of things to come when diversity becomes an organizing principle of military training and operations. On D-Day in World War II, that was June 6, 1944, over 2,500 Americans lost their lives in a single day on the beaches at Normandy. The scale of casualties is unfathomable to, modern, to the modern mind that's more familiar with the nature of low-intensity wars against terrorism. This should remind us, however, that nothing else matters but the competence and character of the service members who sign up to make the ultimate sacrifice. There is no justification for the adoption of military DEI policies. Imposing neo-Marxist ideologies of diversity, equity, and inclusion is the first step in what history has shown to be a case of the pending collapse of military professionalism that could also precede the collapse of the entire nation. Retired Space Force Lieutenant Colonel Matt Lomar, he was a former F-15 pilot who was a guest on the podcast, testified at the House hearing on how he was fired for seeking to depoliticize the military. He criticized the military's diversity, equity, and inclusion training, which at his base included illegal race-based discrimination. I watch these trainings divide our troops ideologically and in some cases sow the seeds of animosity towards the very country they had sworn an oath to defend, Lohmeyer said. He also explained that the DEI industry is steeped in neo-Marxist critical race theory. That's rooted in an anti-American Marxist ideology. It is having <coughs> a divisive impact on all U.S. troops, by dividing our armed forces precisely because CRT was created by those who harbored the intention to undermine and destroy the fabric of American society. The danger is showing up now, causing sharp declines in military recruitment and retention as a result of foisting a false and divisive ideology on the military. What the Pentagon is imposing on the military is more than simply wokeism. It is a Marxist-inspired cultural revolution in the military with the ultimate purpose of subverting and weakening the military. 
and as well as the broader American society. The failure to recognize this cultural war was highlighted during the January 11th hearing at the, sub, at the uh, government accountability hearing. A subcommittee's ranking member, Representative Robert Garcia of California, testified that he insisted that the entire idea of, culture, of a culture war is phony and just a Republican talking point. That view is not held by numerous members of the U.S. military who correctly see what is happening as the destruction of the merit-based professional military system is being replaced with a neo-Marxist ideological agenda based on racialism and radical gender ideology. These are dominant features of the Biden administration. Attempting to institutionalize this ideological worldview is exactly the opposite of the idea of diversity as a strength. It is actually undermining the military and ultimately the entire United States. As Lohmeyer stated at the hearing, this is an American Maoist culture war. The fact that these debates now infect the U.S. military workplace is an offense to people who love their country and all people, regardless of race, gender, or background. Lohmeyer submitted over 100 pages of testimony from military service members who said the diversity ideology is destroying military recruitment and retention by undermining morale, dividing and distracting troops from their core mission, and discouraging Americans from taking part in the military. Another casualty in the Cultural Revolution is the destruction of the image of the U.S. military. That's a vital component in communicating national strength to both allies and enemies. We now appear weaker because we are weaker, Lohmeyer said. Then there is this letter that was signed by 185 retired generals and admirals on May 20th, 2023. The letter, quote, requested that Congress, pursuant to its constitutional powers, take legislative action to remove all diversity, equity, inclusion, DEI programs from the Department of Defense. It also requested Congress ensure that no DEI-related policies, programs, and funding are included in the 2024 National Defense Authorization Act. These leaders warned, quote, as our nation faces looming threats from foreign adversaries and enemies, our military is under assault from a culture war stemming from domestic, ideologically inspired political policies and practices. If not stopped now, they will forever change the military's warrior ethos, which is essential to performing its mission. The NDA The NDAA, when it was finally passed and signed into law in December, failed to put a halt to these destructive Biden administration policies. Most of the measures that were designed to strip out DEI were taken out of the final bill during a House-Senate conference. One measure remained that was cutting the salaries of the DEI facilitators in, in the Pentagon that some in the Congress say will discourage DEI advocates from taking these positions. Lohmeyer stated in concluding his testimony that unless the United States abandons the present hate-filled and divisive path and repents as a nation, we are heading for a national destruction. Here's a few of the comments that he submitted for the record that come from military members and their families. Quote, currently in the military as an O3, that's an officer, let me tell you, it is an absolute joke. Integrity and honor are not rewarded, but diversity and sexuality is. 
The abuse of those who work hard and show up on time is remarkable versus the others who lack motivation and are extremely lazy. How anything gets done is now astonishing. If you're looking for discipline and character building, go work for an independent business. The military is a far cry from what it used to be. Another member said, as a current active duty service member, I can tell you that the military has become weak and woke at the leadership level. And then another soldier, I retired after 25 plus years last February. I made this life-changing decision after what I deemed was CRT indoctrination. They call it something else. My inner voice became an external tirade of disagreement and I knew this was a battle I was going to lose. Cowardly, I decided to exit with my pension intact. The problem with this is so did a great many of my, of my cohort of technical and tactical experts. The great purge continues. So where is this great purge emanating from? So far, we don't have the details that I promise will be forthcoming when some patriotic whistleblower who eventually will put out the names and faces to these destructive woke policies. I credit Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and the first chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the Biden administration, General Mark Milley, with the stain of causing this internal weakening of the military. One of Austin's first acts as Defense Secretary was to order a military-wide stand-down that focused on what he said was a program designed to rid the military of racists and extremists. The Chinese Communist Party military loved the stand-down as it furthered the strategic Beijing effort to weaken the U.S. military, the main enemy of the CCP. The stand-down also furthered the Chinese false notion that the United States is in terminal decline. General Milley left office in 2023, but before he inflicted tremendous damage on the military through his support for these neo-Marxist policies of race and gender. Milley testified in 2022 that he wanted to understand white rage and attributed the January 6 riot to white supremacists. He then went on to defend the imposition of critical race theory in the military as something worth studying. I've read Mao Zedong, he said. I've read Karl Marx. I've read Lenin. That doesn't make me a communist. So what is wrong with understanding, having some situational understanding about the country for which we are here to defend? He missed the point completely. Reading Mao, Marx, and Lenin critically is important to understanding the danger of communist ideology. But in the case of neo-Marxist critical race theory, it is being taught not critically as a false ideology, but as something that must be accepted on faith as a true picture of what it contends as a systematically racist United States. Much of the emphasis on wokeness today is on promoting the idea that America is fatally flawed by systemic racism and white privilege. Our fighting men and women are required to sit through indoctrination programs, often with roots in Marxist tenets of critical race theory, either by the Pentagon diktat or through carelessness by senior leaders who delegate their command responsibilities to private diversity, equity, and inclusion instructors. The United States is not systematically racist and has done more for racial equality than any nation on earth. The drive to promote critical race theory, as Lohmeyer testified, is actually a Trojan horse for Marxist ideological subversion. Climate ideology, which critics say is also being used by anti-American Marxists to impose dictatorial controls on the U.S. population, 
also is being imposed on the military that is being required to include climate impacts in planning military operations and on equipment such as electric vehicles. This is something that's going to seriously degrade the effectiveness of the military. The ultimate goal of American Marxists is to turn the United States military into a political tool for advancing the cause of imposing socialism, the progenitor of communism on the United States. I'll be right back after a short break. You're listening to Victory Over Communism with your host, Bill Gertz, featuring exclusive interviews with today's top newsmakers and trendsetters. Stand by for more after these important messages. If you enjoy listening to Victory Over Communism with your host, Bill Gertz, please consider helping Bill with his important work of educating patriots just like you about how communism is very real and even more dangerous than ever before. Your donation to the Victory Over Communism program will help expand its reach across America and throughout the world. In fact, you'll be helping to provide the kind of information that may well make its way behind the new Iron Curtain and the Great Firewall of China and inspire those living under communism to seek freedom. Supporting the Victory Over Communism program is easy. Just visit the program website, victoryovercommunism.net, and click on the link at the bottom to gofundme.com. Again, just visit victoryovercommunism.net and click on the link to gofundme.com. Thanks for listening, and God bless America. You're listening to Victory Over Communism, featuring exclusive interviews with today's top newsmakers and trendsetters. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. This is the counterproposal section. The idea is what essentially separates VOC worldview from traditional anti-communism. The VOC counterproposal presents a fundamentally different approach from simply exposing the fallacies of Marxism-Leninism, which I seek to accomplish in the first part of each podcast or critique portion. The most effective way to help people realize true freedom and democracy will be in providing a more complete solution to the problem of communism. This is the, very, the, the VOC theory that was first promulgated by the late Reverend Sun Myung Moon, who understood the dangers of communism firsthand. He was imprisoned in a North Korean communist death camp in the 1950s and survived with the help of his faith. So for this section, I'm going to juxtapose the VOC worldview with the Marxist-Leninist ideology. And to me, the truth of this counterproposal leaps out logically when you do that. First, there are the four fundamentals of communism, an ideology based on a certain metaphysical, economic, and historical viewpoint. Essentially, communism is based on these four fundamental principles, absolute materialism, the law of dialectics, historical materialism, and humankind as a product of its environment, economic environment. These four pillars support communist theories. Reviewing them briefly, absolute materialism is based on Marx's assertion that he was successful in perfecting all of the past materialisms. He had gone beyond the materialism of the mechanists such as Voltaire, and likewise he had gone beyond the humanistic materialism of Feuerbach. Like them, Marx believed there was no God. However, his atheism differed from those of others in its degree of militant opposition to theism. For Marx, religion had served as a tool of capitalism used by the ruling class to oppress the weak. According to Marx, the essence of the universe is matter in motion. 
Somehow, matter has within it the potential to evolve towards certain natural, biological, and even political ends. Next, a, f a second fundamental view of Marx is that he universalized the laws of the dialectic. Citing various examples from nature, Engels maintained that certain laws and principles were inherent to motion. What was it that caused motion to occur? It was the dialectic. Because of the conflicting or dialectical relationship between thesis and antithesis, ultimately one will destroy the other. This confrontation will contribute to a new development or synthesis, which will combine the best qualities of thesis and antithesis. Marxists interpreted the dialectical developed by Engels as the guiding principle within nature. They then applied it to human society and history. Third, Marx maintained that history had developed on the basis of the dialectic. He and we've discussed this in the in the last episode. He emphasized that humankind has passed through various stages. The foundation for each stage is history of history was determined by the economic relationships of that stage, and these in turn were subject to the laws of the dialectic. Marx pointed to six different historical stages. Primitive communal society, slave society, feudalistic society, capitalist society, socialist, and ultimately communist society. Marx believed the advancement of history was predestined to culminate in a communist ideal society. Engels' Dialectics of Nature affirms that even if the universe is destroyed, the dynamic of matter is such that it will the evolutionary process will begin again ultimately culminating in the formation of a communist system. In other words, matter itself will always evolve towards the same social end. Thus, communism is said to be inevitable. This is the mandate which the dialectic gives to history. Marx asserted that humans were a product of the economic environment and that the essence of evil was economic alienation. He discarded any religious concept of alienation and emphasized that religion and God have served as tools to maintain economic domination by one class or another. Marx furthermore maintained that the only way to change humankind was to change the economic system. Marx also asserted that the elimination of private property, particularly private ownership of the means of production, would bring about this ideal or utopian society. So, a counterproposal rooted in truth and absolute values is the true antidote to the false ideas of Marxism. I've stated in earlier podcasts that the VOC critique of Marxism shows how these points are not true, Marxist points. They are lies and deceptions masquerading as scientific reasoning. The VOC worldview can remove the dis disguise and expose the lies. Beyond exposing the lies, however, what is urgently needed in this war of ideologies is a truth-based counterproposal. Any counterproposal to Marxism must be founded on truth. Light alone overcomes darkness. Truth alone overcomes lies. For the VOC worldview, truth can only result in, in, with a God-affirming worldview that in the past has been called Godism and which I call the VOC worldview. The most fundamental truth in this counterproposal is the existence of God. Communism is based on the assumption that there is no God. When the existence of God is clarified, absolute materialism is exposed as false. In the VOC worldview, the most important question in life is, does God exist? If God exists, then there are absolute values. If there are 
if there are absolute values, this will be the foundation for a moral and ethical standard. That moral and ethical standard must be permanent and unchanging, just as God is unchanging. This is a fundamental truth. All human behavior is accountable to and will be measured against the absolute standard of God. For many people, the question of God's existence remains unanswered. Certainly in our secular age, the question arises, if God exists, then why is there so much evil? This question has had a tremendous impact upon the whole mentality of humankind. In many respects, the mentality which emerged in the United States in the 60s stems from this atheistic existentialism. One thing that led both Camus and Sartre to deny God was their observation of the injustice in the world. If God was good, if God was a good God, how could he possibly permit such suffering of humankind? If there is no God, there cannot be absolute values. In that case, communism would be correct in its belief that values are relative to circumstances. At least communism offers based on relativism, a convincing explanation of human life and history. For that reason, the question of God's existence is absolutely the essential question. It is the fundamental question. Does God exist? This is not a new question. It's ancient. But upon the question hinges our entire view of life and the world. In seeking answers, two contrasting views have emerged— one view holds that humans are derived from the, a creator, God, and the entire world is God's creation. Based on this belief, religions have come about and the values, ethics, and spiritual heritage of our world have developed. A fundamentally different main view maintains that there is no God and that this world was not created. This is the atheistic, communist, or Marxist position. In this view, matter alone has always existed and is the essence of the universe. Human life is seen as nothing more than a phenomena associated with matter, and human beings must thus create their own meaning and purpose, as well as their own solutions to life's problems. In this view, God is a concept found only in the human mind. The problem we face today is that of determining which view is the truth. If God exists, then communism must be wrong. If God does not exist, then communism may be correct. God or no God, two contradictory beliefs cannot both be true. There must be a showdown in which the truth will prevail. This showdown is now occurring. There are basically two worlds around us, one that is based on the belief that God exists and the other on the belief that he does not. The former is represented by the free world and the latter is represented by the communist world, led today by the Chinese Communist Party. This showdown is in our individual lives as well. In every person's life, the decisive moment comes when they must face the awesome question squarely, is there a God? The question, God or no God, is still the most fundamental question for humankind. The answer to this question affects our behavior from simple daily life to global events. And I'll go on to explain more detail about this, this fundamental view that God does exist, and it is through understanding God that we can ultimately defeat communism ideologically. I'll be right back after a short break. You're listening to Victory Over Communism with your host, Bill Gertz. Featuring exclusive interviews with today's top newsmakers and trendsetters. Stand by for more after these important messages. 
Hi, this is Bill Gertz. I wanted to talk to you briefly about my latest book. It's called Deceiving the Sky Inside Communist China's Drive for Global Supremacy. This is the most important book you can read to fully understand the threat posed by the Chinese Communist government. I urge you to get a copy today. It can be got, found at my website, The Gertz File. That's GertzFile.com or at the book site called DeceivingTheSky.com. You're listening to Victory Over Communism, featuring exclusive interviews with today's top newsmakers and trendsetters. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. For the news portion, I'm going to highlight a recent article I wrote in my Inside the Ring column in the Washington Times. And it reveals how false narratives at the Pentagon continue to be promoted. In late January, the Pentagon hosted a book talk for officials on the threat of right-wing terrorism. Despite a recent Defense Department study that concluded the presence of right-wing extremists in the military is a phantom threat. The book talk drew criticism from some in the Pentagon who saw the program hosted by the Office of Special Operations and Low-Intensity Conflict as furthering the false narrative that the military is riddled with right-wing extremists. Lisa Lawrence, a Pentagon spokeswoman, told me the book talk is part of a series that seeks to contribute to the professional development of the workforce. The engagement was not about extremism in the military, she said. Lloyd Austin, as I mentioned, the defense secretary, ordered a study in 2021 of extremism in the military after news reports said some service members took place in the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol. In December, the Institute of Defense Analysis released its report based on information obtained between June 2021 and June of 2022. But the report was not released until 18 months later. The reason? It obviously contradicted the neo-Marxist view that the military is a dangerous political bastion. The IDA report revealed that the military is not full of violent extremists, as most who have served in uniform know well, and as we heard from some of those uh, earlier testimonies. The IDA study found no evidence that the number of violent extremists in the military is disproportionate to the number of violent extremists in the United States as a whole. Pentagon data also showed that fewer than 100 substantiated cases per year of extremist activity by members of the military in recent years. Extremist and gang-related activity in the military resulted in less than 20 courts martials since 2012, the report said. The report also debunked the idea that the military service members took part in the January 6th riot in large numbers. Of the 700 federal cases related to the riot, fewer than 10 involved military personnel. The IDA study also noted that military personnel are confused about terminology defining extremist activity and that the push by liberal Pentagon officials to promote the claims could lead to polarization within the military. In the absence of a clear and consistent message, there is a risk that misinterpretations could lead to a significant division in the force along political and ideological lines, with some members of the military believing that they are being targeted for their views, the report said. It also said the IDL found reason to believe that the risk to the military from widespread polarization and division in the ranks 
may be a greater risk than the radicalization of a few service members. It really poured cold water on Lloyd Austin's theory. The IDA study followed a report by the administration's Countering Extremist Activity Working Group that revealed that cases of prohibited extremist activity among service members is rare. In a force of more than 2.1 million active duty and reserve troops, there were only 100 cases. The effort to find right-wing extremists in the military reflects ongoing efforts by left-wing ideologues in the Biden administration, neo-Marxists, who've asserted that white supremacy is a serious threat to American society. President Biden said last year in a speech that white supremacy is, quote, the most dangerous terrorist threat to the nation, despite the fact that such terrorism is almost non-existent. In a campaign speech January 9th, courting black voters, he said white supremacy is a poison that has too, for too long has haunted his, this nation. In, in a report produced by the staff of Senator Marco Rubio and Representative Chip Roy opposing woke policies in the military, the two lawmakers said political ideology is weakening our military. Our military's singular purpose is to provide for the common defense of the nation. It cannot be turned into a left-wing social experiment. It cannot be used as a cudgel against America itself. And it cannot be paralyzed by fear of offending the sensibilities of Ivy League faculty lounges or progressive pundits. Another news story for this section presents some really good news. That is that there's a new group that launched on January 31st with the goal of confronting Chinese communism and other national security threats, but at a different level, the state and local level. The not-for-profit group is called State Armor and is devoted to educating American public and lawmakers about state-level policy solutions. States are now on the front lines against foreign adversaries. In fact, for years, states have been targeted by well-resourced, technologically sophisticated foreign adversaries, particularly communist China. The new uh, group is headed by Michael Lucci, founder and CEO, and we're going to hear from him in the interview portion. The Chinese Communist Party is engaged in a broad effort to supplant the United States so it can rewrite global norms according to its authoritarian model. To achieve its goals, the CCP aggressively pursues a strategy to gain economic leverage over state and local governments, to make states dependent on their technologies, and to suppress the First Amendment protected speech of Chinese dissidents within America. The goal of state armor is to counter the CCP strategy and transform America's decentralized system of federalism into a tremendous national security asset. State armor dedicates its energy to exposing malign CCP influence operations and educating lawmakers and the public about threats to things like the supply chains, vulnerabilities caused by Chinese technologies like Huawei Technologies Telecommunications uh, Equipment, the pitfalls of enabling the Communist Party's gross human rights violations in China, and the CCP's violations of civil liberties in America. Uh, that's been well documented about how they're going after dissidents and coercing and threatening uh, people in the United States. As former White House National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien put it, state armor is going to bring awareness and ready-for-action plans to, to push counter-China policies that many of our state leaders know 
they need to get done, but just aren't sure where to start. It's no secret the Chinese Communist Party poses a major threat to the American way of life, but until now, there hasn't been a group solely focused on taking on Communist China at the state level. This issue is not partisan. States want to take action now. State armor will be there to show them how. That's from uh, Robert O'Brien. The group says it plans to mobilize a network of stakeholders. That includes concerned citizens and experts who can provide aid to states in developing and implementing comprehensive, common sense, and bipartisan solutions to protect themselves from what is widely regarded as a generation-defining threat, that of the Chinese Communist Party. Beijing's strategy to weaken the U.S. runs through the states, as evidenced by Xi Jinping's impromptu drop-in to Anchorage to work a trade deal with Alaska after he met with Trump in Mar-a-Lago in 2017. And more recently, the Communist Party's very effective program to drive a wedge between the president and the California governor, both members of the same party. That's from Dave Stilwell, former Assistant Secretary of State uh, at the State Department, uh, uh, who was also a guest on the show. Instead, the entree into the U.S. economy, Beijing has created 50 additional access points. An initiative like State Armor is long overdue, a very necessary strategy to prevail in the new Cold War. State Armor believes state solutions will not only provide near-term safeguards, but help make it easier for federal policymakers to adopt national protections. From CCP-affiliated purchases of agricultural land to efforts by the party to influence state and local politics, states are on the front lines of our new Cold War with the Chinese Communist Party. We may call this a strategic competition, but this is not a polite tennis match. The most fundamental human rights and freedom are at stake. State armor is acting with a sense of urgency to expose the CCP's nefarious networks across states and equip local lawmakers with the tools to fight the new Cold War. You can find out more about the group at their website, statearmor.org, or visit State Armor on X at, at State Armor. This is the kind of group that is urgently needed in the current ideological war against Chinese communism and American Marxism. I'll be right back with the interview portion after a short break. You're listening to Victory Over Communism with your host, Bill Gertz, featuring exclusive interviews with today's top newsmakers and trendsetters. Stand by for more after these important messages. If you enjoy listening to Victory Over Communism with your host, Bill Gertz, please consider helping Bill with his important work of educating patriots just like you about how communism is very real and even more dangerous than ever before. Your donation to the Victory Over Communism program will help expand its reach across America and throughout the world. In fact, you'll be helping to provide the kind of information that may well make its way behind the new Iron Curtain and the Great Firewall of China and inspire those living under communism to seek freedom. Supporting the Victory Over Communism program is easy. Just visit the program website, victoryovercommunism.net, and click on the link at the bottom to gofundme.com. Again, just visit victoryovercommunism.net and click on the link to gofundme.com. Thanks for listening, and God bless America. Hi, friends. During the break, I'd like to briefly mention a little bit about my website, The Gertz File. 
It's GertzFile.com, and there you can find lots of information. I mentioned earlier my book, Deceiving the Sky. I also would like you to look at I War, War and Peace in the Information Age, which was my previous book. And this is a really important look at information warfare and what we need to do to counter it. I also have information, further information about the podcast, as well as information about the Gertz File Investigative Reporting Project and all of my stories uh, linked to the Washington Times. You're listening to Victory Over Communism, featuring exclusive interviews with today's top newsmakers and trendsetters. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. I've got two interview portions for this podcast. The first is with Michael Lucci. Michael is the founder and CEO of State Armor. That's the group that's confronting the Chinese Communist Party and its influence operations at the state and local level. Then I talked to Will Tebow. Will, as you recall from earlier in the podcast, was one of those who testified against the neo-Marxist drive by the Biden administration to subvert the military. First up is Michael Lucci. Michael is founder and CEO of State Armor. Michael, welcome to the program. Bill, thanks for having me on. It's great to be on your show. Great. Uh, State Armor is a unique effort to focus public attention and education on the threat posed by communist China and other national security threats to states in particular. This is an issue that was brought to the public's attention in 2020 by then Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, which I've covered for The Washington Times. Pompeo, in several speeches, outlined how the Chinese Communist Party's officials had targeted state legislatures and universities to do Beijing's bidding. Uh, Michael, first off, tell us a little bit about uh, State Armor and the impetus behind it. Well, State Armor's um, focus is to provide state solutions to global security threats. So it's a lot of what you're speaking about with um, what Mike Pompeo pointed to as the problem. The reason uh, we launched State Armor is because there is a gap in the states. There's tremendous national security expertise in Washington, D.C., and there's tremendous willingness to take action in the states. And so what we're trying to do is marry some of the expertise that's largely concentrated in the D.C. area with some of the willingness and, and really eagerness to act by state leaders who recognize Uh, that they are facing global adversaries, the Chinese Communist Party in particular, and they recognize that they need to act, they want to act, they just want the right solutions to put into law. Mm -hmm. So, okay, uh, what are some of the projects uh, you're uh, engaged in and what do you got planned for the future? Well, State Armor is primarily focused on uh, working to enact laws. So we have uh, a C3 research organization, which does, you know, developing policy ideas uh, and education. And we have a C4 advocacy organization, which is uh, gets directly involved in state house activities. And so we, uh, our solutions are really bucketed into three areas. First is protecting critical infrastructure. Second is building the supply chains of freedom. And third is stopping influence operations. So I'll give you just kind of one example from each uh, category mm-hmm. on protecting critical infrastructure. Um, The state legislature in Nebraska passed unanimous legislation last year to require 
ripping and replacing all Huawei telecom equipment. Uh, what's really scary about that situation is that our nuclear missile silos in Western Nebraska were surrounded on all sides with Huawei telecom equipment. Uh, and so the FBI had assessed, you know, this could be used for intercepting our, our communications and signals. So that's a solution, that Nebraska solution, we really think states should look at that. On building the supply chains of freedom, um, you know, we look at certain sensitive technologies such as LIDAR, such as drones. And sometimes we just say, you know, at the federal level, they did the Drone Security Act. They say the federal government's not going to purchase any more um, drones from advers adversary nations. States can pass the same legislation. Really, they should because the federal government cannot tell states about their procurements. Only states can make that decision. And other technologies such as a LIDAR, which is a laser sensing technology, uh, really should not be in state critical infrastructure. It shouldn't be in cars that are going to be on state roads if it's coming from an adversary nation. And of course, on uh, influence operations, you know, we, we really promote the idea of states creating their own Foreign Agent Registration Act. And we really promote the idea, like you referred to earlier with Secretary Pompeo, of protecting higher ed, protecting our research institutions and our student bodies from foreign influence operations. All three of these areas are critical. Uh, yeah, and, and they're areas that the Chinese Communist Party is really focused on. And, and it's so many people don't really understand that. Um, what, how, how do we educate the public about this and how, what's, what's State Armor going to do? You, you talked about legislation. Are there other educational activities or things that you, you're going to try to uh, uh, raise public awareness about these threats? So, so far we've uh, focused much of our education effort on lawmakers themselves, uh, elevating those issues and kind of closing the gap that I was describing where there's tremendous appetite at the state level. Um, there's just a gap on what they ought to do to combat these threats that are coming at them. Um, we do intend to uh, move more into public education, as you're pointing to. I will say that if you look at polling on these issues, and, and we've actually polled um, some of our specific solutions, the public overwhelmingly supports uh, actions that we're recommending states take. And the public overwhelmingly recognizes, particularly after the pandemic, the public overwhelmingly recognizes the threat of the Chinese Communist Party. It's The numbers are unbelievable on, on, on how much of the American public, bipartisan, across party lines, across age groups, recognizes that the Chinese Communist Party is a threat to America and her interests. So we, we have um, we have plans to do more public education, but right now, uh, just given what the legislative calendar looks like, the first half of the year is when state legislatures are busy and, and passing legislation. So that's where we're focused for the first half of the year. Okay. Uh, any particular uh, state projects you'd uh, like to share with us, some of the things you're working on? Well, we're we're in about 15 states right now, um, and as as we're speaking, I'm in Arizona, um, and and we'll be having hearings on three or four really important pieces of legislation today, and then there will be more hearings on more legislation in Arizona over the next two weeks. I think that there's 10 to 12 total pieces of legislation being considered in Arizona, but Arizona is certainly not a one-off. Um, you know, later this week we'll be up in Nebraska. I, I mentioned earlier how mm -hmm. um, the the senator there, it's a Democrat who's the leading senator on these issues, and it's the Republican governor kind of 
arm to arm, shoulder to shoulder, protecting their states. That's another really great example of a state that has a lot of appetite to take on uh, these problems. And they're doing it in a bipartisan fashion, which is, I think, the most important thing. This is an American issue. It's not a partisan issue. Yeah, I've reported on uh, Huawei Technologies uh, efforts in local localities. And uh, I know that the uh, Federal Communications Commission has been trying to uh, get those Huawei systems taken out. It's just been a very difficult bureaucratic process. But yeah, you're right. The best things that have happened happen through legislation. I mean, at the federal level, I've noted that. Uh, take, for example, when it relates to China, the Taiwan Relations Act. Uh, when we de-recognized uh, Taipei and recognized Beijing, Congress stepped in and passed the Taiwan Relations Act, which said that the U.S. will continue to support Taiwan with defensive arms. Uh, also, the um, uh, China Military Power Report is another educational tool. The Pentagon, it's uh, been putting that out for decades, and uh, it's it's changed in quality. Congress has, again, pushed it to do more and to identify more things. Um, uh, any final comments to sum up for, uh, the interview tell, uh, on uh, state armor? We've been talking with Michael Lucci on this. Yeah, one last thing I would leave you with is uh, one of our proposals that we've noticed the most appetite for is what we call the Pacific Conflict Stress Test. And I think that this is something that the American public should really be aware of. Um, in Congress last week, there was testimony about China preparing for a conflict in the Pacific. And as a part of those preparations, they've essentially been uh, laying, uh, Congressman Gallagher said they've been essentially laying uh, sabotage equipment on our critical infrastructure in various ways, whether cyber or otherwise. He compared it to putting bombs on a bridge. And so what we asked states to do and what Nebraska is doing this week is considering legislation to say, if China starts a fight over there, how does that affect us here? Because we ought to be preparing for those contingencies. What's our experience with a situation like this? Well, we all just went through the pandemic three years ago that originated in China it spread across the globe and it rocked global markets. It rocked supply chains. It was hugely disruptive. And so we say if they were to start a fight over Taiwan or some other you know, theater over there, uh, this would be like the pandemic disruptions times 10. And so states will be on the front lines if this happens again, and they should start being preparing for that now. Um, that issue we've pulled, the American people overwhelmingly support state lawmakers taking action for those preparations because the American people remember what happened with the pandemic. We didn't get good information out of China. Uh, and then China, of course, cut our supply chains in, in many instances with the last time. So that certainly could happen again. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, tell us, how can people uh, find State Armor online and on social media? So our website is statearmor.org. And then, of course, on Twitter, it's at statearmor. Uh, that's the easiest way to find what we're up to or where we're working with states or where we're on television uh, working with partners like you. Sounds great. Uh, keep up the great work. Thank you. Joining me now on the podcast is Will Tebow, who I mentioned earlier supplied important testimony to the House opposing neo-Marxist social engineering within the military. Will is director of the American Military Project at the Center for the American Way of Life. The project works to systematically expose, evaluate, 
and eliminate manifestations of wokeness in the personnel programs and policies of the U.S. military. Will served as an Army Ranger in multiple deployments in the Middle East. Uh, welcome. Thanks, Bill. Uh, earlier in the program, I focused on that House hearing that you testified on regarding the progressive ideologies being pressed on the military by the Biden administration. From your perspective, how bad is the problem? It's bad, but it's been like this for a long time. And we we should understand there are really important policy remedies that need to happen from Congress and perhaps an eventual presidential administration to affect actual change in how the military works. And those policies come down to race and sex-based quotas, or in other words, uh, an affirmative action regime for military personnel that would make the Ivy League blush. In essence, if there is evidence and reason to believe that most, if not all of the armed forces have sex and race-based personnel goals, the, the euphemisms abound, mm -hmm. but they are quotas. Yeah. And it's indicative that Democrats, you know, on the hearing you mentioned, as well as military officers, when they testify in front of Congress, will go to great lengths to try and ensure you that there are no race or sex-based quotas. But that's exactly what are on the books. Uh, yeah. In August 2022, member from the Air Force, West Point admissions policy, there are a number of examples and we need to hold the military's feet to the fire. So this finally changes because it's been like this since probably about 1965. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, your testimony really hit home on a couple of key points. Like uh, you pointed out that military service is different from the civilian way of life and it's got to be free from ideological agendas and uh, obviously the point of the military uh, people in the, mil in the military is to fight and win the nation's wars. Uh, they're changing that today. This is social engineering. Uh, I, and again, I call it by neo-Marxists who want to remake the military into a political force. Um, and you noted in your testimony that militaries driven by political ideologies end up badly. It's a disaster, like the Soviet military. Um, is that kind of where we're headed now with if this continues? You know, I, I, I understand kind of the standpoint of, of concerns about a Marxist approach to this. Um, you know, but I, I, again, want to simplify what exactly we're talking about. We're talking about hiring and promoting people to serve our nation based on the color of their skin or their sex. And that's objectionable to a military that is and should be based on the military profession or that which makes the military more effective at, at, like, at like you said, Bill, uh, fighting and winning our nation's wars. That, I think, does have concerns for how other political ideology creeps in. But let's just talk about the unifying principle that our military should be not just good enough, but the best in that we should expect the best of them and expect the best people to join. And if any other consideration filters into that decision-making, that's a problem. And there are instances throughout history where when you evaluated other qualities that don't affect whether a person is a good infantryman or a good nuclear submarine officer or a good cyber technician, that the broader military competence of a nation breaks down and, and there are troubling signs of that taking place. 
Yeah, I, uh, I was uh, one, one other point you made was about D-Day and in World War II when we lost 2,500 people in a single day. And you argued at that, uh, said, look, competence has got to be the most important factor, merit-based promotions and competence. Um, are, are we losing that now? I mean, uh, with the, the current policies and what are you hearing from uh, people you know in the military about these problems? We shouldn't wait to find out. And I, you know, I hear, you know, whispers and, and grumblings from old friends who, you know, have their own careers to protect. But it's it's clear this is a problem. I, I once had an officer come up to me at an event completely unrelated. We were uh, coaching CrossFit for the weekend. Yeah, he didn't know what I did. He didn't know this was part of my work, but we were just chatting about, you know, me being a veteran and and he made a comment about, you know, with with as big of a focus on demographics these days, you know, it's it's a it's a doubt in his mind if a white officer is going to get promoted to general. And that was striking to me uh, that that someone brings brings that up kind of unannounced um, without without prompting and. My, you know, I guess my thought is there. I think there are some incidents, you know, even as during the Trump administration with with a few uh, naval uh, sea vessel crashes that that really shouldn't be happening. Obviously, you know, the Iraq and Afghanistan wars didn't didn't always go as planned, although there was plenty of tactical success. But operationally, there, there was a lot of friction. But we, we shouldn't wait to find out. You know, it's enough to understand the principle and the, the proposition that the military should be formed based on what, what the military is good at. And that doesn't mean objective criteria like test taking and fitness scores, but it should mean an evaluation of criteria that suits the job for which a person is applying or suits the values of the military. And as Americans, we should understand that your race or your sex is not part of that equation. Right. Right. One of the uh, things that was mentioned at the hearing was a letter that was written by, I think, 185 uh, general and flag officers who said, look, Congress has got to act to remove this. There were provisions in the most recently passed National Defense Authorization Act that would have done that. Um, and they were stripped out in co the House-Senate conference. The only thing that remained was a provision that lowered the amount that could be paid for diversity, equity, and inclusion officials at the Pentagon, which is hopefully going to be a deterrent for those people that they, they can't get a lot of money doing what they're doing. Uh, this kind of highlights the problem. How do we solve this? What what's, uh, If you were uh, running things in, in as chairman of the House Armed Services Committee or as uh, defense secretary, what needs to be done to fix this problem? Jim Banks, Congressman of Indiana, had language in the version of the NDA that passed the House, which essentially ended considerations of race and sex for personnel decisions. That needs to be policy. And nothing else will legitimately end this regime of diversity that's overtaken military decisions. And it's a shame, frankly, and it's it should be seen as a complete indictment of the NDA that did pass that Jim Banks's language was not included in the NDA. Um, from a policy perspective, it, as it as it as it relates to things about wokeness or DEI, it begins and ends there for me. You mm -hmm. can you can fire DEI officers, you can change funding items, but when the 
infrastructure, you know, person, the, uh, the infrastructure of the organization, the personnel uh, decision making is defined by a principle that you must have a diverse organization before you have a, a merit based one. That's a problem. And only an end, an explicit, complete end to considerations of race and sex is necessary. Th this was the policy of the army in the 1950s after mm -hmm. President Truman in integrated the force. They mm -hmm. even stopped tracking race on U.S. Army personnel files. Mm. There's historical precedent, and that's precedent for this, and that's the time to which we should return as it concerns personnel. Great. Uh, we've been talking with Will Tebow. He's director of the American Military Project at the Center for American, the American Way of Life. Uh, Will, how can people uh, find your writings and find you on the internet and uh, social media? Best place I, I want to direct folks is to the Claremont Review books, where we'll have great content coming out next issue, as well as the website of uh, Thomas Klingenstein. That's going to be the the pages and the the format where we truly plant a flag in the ground for the extent of the problem with diversity, equity, and inclusion in the military, and how we can finally solve it. Great. Uh, we'll have to leave it at there. Thanks so much for your time. All right. Thank you, Bill. That's it for this episode of Victory Over Communism. Please tune in again in another couple of weeks. Thanks for listening to Victory Over Communism with award-winning national security journalist Bill Gertz, the only program in the free world unafraid to pull back the curtain of communism to reveal how the Communist Party of China and even America's own brand of Marxism pose real threats to freedom and democracy in America and the world today. See you next time on Victory Over Communism with your host, Bill Gertz.